Accomplishment Coaching is proud to present the following fine programming. Accomplishment Coaching, where coaches lead and leaders coach. AccomplishmentCoaching.com. Welcome to Heart Empowered Women Radio with your host, Clarice Connolly. And welcome to another episode of Heart Empowered Women podcast. I'm Clarice Connolly and I'm the hostess and I'm so elated. Uh, This is just going to be an incredible, super juicy, amazing podcast. This topic is really near and dear to my heart. So I can't wait to bring it to you. A little bit about me. I always forget to bring this up because I'm just so excited and elated to have empowered women on sharing their empowered life and their journey. I am an accountability coach, a life coach, an empowerment coach, a business coach, really just getting people kind of where they're at and meeting them there and seeing where they want to go and really supporting them and getting clear on how to get there and what that looks like and being the accountability to just support them and facing, you know, what is in the way and how do we get past that? And what are the emotional things that are tying us down, holding us back and, how can we strengthen our essentially our emotional intelligence and really create awareness around the things that we want and are don't want are not wanting. And you can find me on empoweringwomen.coach. And I uh, would love to hear from you. How are you loving this podcast? How are you feeling inspired? What are some people that you know that you want to send out and have the opportunity to be interviewed. I'm always looking for connection and I adore and love humans through and through. So please reach out to me and thank you for tuning in and listening and growing with us and evolving and challenging yourself. The intention of the podcast is really to have someone that's taken an obstacle in their life and really overcome it and not just making this a pretty like, wow, it's all been wonderful. There are some hard and or ugly pieces. And how can you hear yourself while your story isn't the exact same and you aren't maybe fighting this same experience? How can you hear the opportunity in it for your life? And how can you feel the inspiration or feel the opportunity to take the next exciting or terrifying or whatever step that is coming up for you by listening. So listen with an open mind and an open heart, and maybe you can find a resource or the support to support others in your life. And maybe it's not just for you. So with that being said, we're going to welcome back Tiffany Theon. She is an RN and an intuitive eating coach. And Tiffany helps women with disordered eating to finally heal the relationship with foods. They can gain freedom balance, and satisfaction. She helps clients to stop the binge, shame, restrict cycle through intuitive eating. Clients begin to fully nourish themselves, mind, body, and spirit. So they feel great and they have the energy to do what they want to do. Tiffany's passion is helping women stop wasting their precious energy drained by the food and body struggle so they can use their energy to be powerful leaders in the world. She has been sober for 20 years 
and 21, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and feels that her recovery has informed all areas of her life and especially her work as a nurse and a coach. So when she isn't coaching, she enjoys spending time with her friends and family, being out in nature and creating more fun and adventure and play in her life. Welcome back to the show, Tiffany. So Thank excited you. to have you. <laughs> Happy have you. Because I was really excited to say, happy 21 years sober. Congratulations. Thank you very much. (laughs) So we've had Tiffany on to talk about intuitive eating because that's always a topic that I am learning, growing, and expanding in. And that's always been one of my struggles. Today, we want to talk about the sobriety part. And it's... Ooh. So tell us your journey. I don't even... Let's start there. What's been your, your road to sobriety? You know, what's been your darkest moments? How did you get started? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I was um, just before we started recording, I was saying how much I enjoyed a talk that you gave recently and how um, how I think it's so important for people to hear um, how others have, break, you know, broken through areas of shame or struggle or stigma in their life and healed. And so um, thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's wonderful. All right. So, yeah, so my journey. So, gosh, um, I definitely, you know, I started, you know, experimenting with drugs and alcohol, well, primarily alcohol and smoking and things like that at a pretty young age. So around 10 years old, um, my dad that um, raised me was not he did not drink. He was sober. And, um, so there wasn't really alcohol in the house, but, um, we had other family who, you know, drank or used. Um, I remember going to a family reunion and being like the beer gopher and, um, (laughs) and then just like, you know, sampling and, um, and that sort of thing pretty young. Um, I remember there was a party at my grandparents' house and I, mixed all the drinks and just, pour, you know, like poured myself like, a, you know, like a red, like a oh, just full of yeah. like all the alcohol. And it was so gross, but I don't really remember much of the rest of the night. So, you know, my drinking from the time I began was pretty, um, you know, with something that I wanted to kind of do to the maximum. Right. And I was always curious about it and always wanting to, um, you know, have access. And so I didn't have a lot of access, but as is, uh, anytime I did, I definitely experimented with it. Um, and I think around 13 or 14, I experienced depression, um, a period of depression kind of for the first time. And I didn't really talk with my parents about it. And it was only recently that I really recognized that my use was kind of in response to that, or, you know, after that period of time, um, you know, my childhood wasn't, extreme. It wasn't, you know, I didn't experience a ton of um, what would be considered trauma on the outside, but I definitely was a more sensitive person. I definitely had some um, painful struggles in my life. And um, that depression was something that really um, made it so that I felt like I needed to find um, another, you know, something to kind of buffer it. And so, um, from then on, I started experimenting with drinking and, um, substances and pretty much used anything that I could get my hands on. And so, um, that turned into pretty intense amphetamine use. Um, and I was always a little bit more extreme, you know, like with smoking, I ended up being a two pack a day smoker, uh, you know, these kinds of things. And so, I don't, you know, that piece, I don't know if that's a genetic piece, if it's more of a personality or, or what, but, um, 
but I definitely had the um, desire to kind of use to the maximum, you know, whatever. And that meant that I would try to arrange things so that I could like stay at friends' houses or I could be away from my parents or not, you know, not having to drive and these things so that I could just, you know, drink like all the way as much as I could and, um, or use as much as I could. And, and then it became, you know, definitely like a habit, a daily use um, type of a situation. And I think had I been older, um, drinking would have played even more of a role, but I didn't have a ton of access. And I also was kind of, um, the kind of person who always wanted to like go to work and, you know, do these things so that I'd have my freedom. And so, um, you know, I tended to use in ways that I could do, you know, to maintain right throughout my day. And so, um, that really came to a head as I, you know, as I got a little bit older, um, still, you know, still my teenage years, but daily use of amphetamines is pretty, you know, it's pretty intense and really brought me to my knees. Um, I ended up going to treatment and, um, you know, at the request of my parents, because I was starting to like run away from home, I was starting to, um, you know, I had lost a ton of weight. I was probably, you know, I don't know, 30 pounds underweight at that point. Mm. Um, and you know, my, like my mom would hug me and, you know, feel like my shoulder blades jetting out and could feel my ribs and things like that and was getting really concerned about me. Um, and so they finally kind of put it two and two together and figured out that I was using, cause I had, I hit it, uh, pretty much right until the last moment. And so, yeah, so I went to treatment and in treatment, um, they were pretty 12 step focused. And so I was, you know, brought to some AA meetings and some meetings were brought into the treatment center. Um, it was a really short term treatment center. I was supposed to be there for, I don't know, a week. I think I ended up staying like 17 days or something. (laughs) They were like, no, you have to stay longer. (laughs) You you need to stay longer. (laughs) Yeah. Which I mean, in retrospect, like that's barely nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, how, they definitely. How old were you at the when at you that in? point? I think I was, I was only, I was maybe seventeen. Okay. Um, yeah, I must have just just turned seventeen. I might have even been sixteen still. Anyway, um, when I came out, I had, you know, at that point, I had decided that I wanted to try to stay sober. I started attending meetings on my own. I immediately met my daughter's father, and um, pretty immediately. Uh, after that, had an episode of return to use and then found out that I was pregnant. Um, and so I, I actually, I had to t- kind of gone back to meetings and, and stopped using by the time I found out I was pregnant. But I definitely had some shame and guilt around the fact that I had used while pregnant, even though, you know, I didn't know that I was pregnant. Um, but, you know, just kind of fear around that that was going to be harmful to my child, um, which I think was in some ways detrimental, but also in some ways helpful because then it kind of motivated me to stay, um, sober throughout the pregnancy. And, um, so then I had a, you know, nine, almost nine month reprieve. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and then after she was born, you know, I really wasn't convinced that I, that alcohol was really a problem for me. And so, um, when she was about three months old, I had a week long um, period of drinking and, Um, I would say, you know, the, that week long period was helpful because it really helped solidify that, you know, it wasn't just drugs, you know, because it's easy, I think, for people to be like, well, drugs are problematic, you know, or Mm -hmm. hard, harder core drugs are problematic or, you know, amphetamines are a problem, right? For, for anyone. But for me, like any substance I think is, 
is problematic, right? And alcohol is included in that. And so I needed to have that time of experimentation. At the end of that week, I had a night where I, um, you, you know, I, I was drinking and I woke up in the morning and I had my daughter and she was in her crib without, she had a clean diaper on, but no clothes. And so I don't remember that. And so I realized that I was blacked out and handling her, you know, and, and she was okay. But, um, but it really scared me and made me realize that this human is reliant upon me. Um, and, you know, if I'm so drunk that I can't remember um, that I was blacked out, you know, it'd be easy to drop her or something like that. Right. Um, and so that, that was a real big wake up call for me. And I did a lot of, um, self-reflection and I mean, I did want to be sober for myself as well, because, um, I was, I re I recognized how much pain I had been in when I was using and where it led me. There was definitely periods where I put myself in a really unsafe position. You know, there were times where I had, um, situations where, um, you know, I wasn't safe and I, I was harmed in those situations. There was times where, you know, I put myself at risk sexually and, um, and just really was, you know, at the mercy of whoever I was spending time with. And a lot of times those weren't the most savory people, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, I imagine not. Um, so, you know, so I did want to be sober for myself, but I think having a little, little baby who is dependent on me was really, um, was really a big motivator for me because I, I didn't want her to, uh, I didn't want to risk her safety. So even though I didn't always fully um, protect my own safety, you know, another person, mm -hmm. a little baby who's dependent on mm -hmm. me was, was a priority for sure. So that's kind of the story of, you know, how I came to um, realizing that I really wanted to um, be in recovery uh, I intended, I attended 12 step meetings and did the steps and, um, had a lot of benefit from that. I built a lot of community there in Portland. There's a big, um, young people's recovery, mm. um, movement. So, you know, I had, um, fortunately I had other young people that I could, that I could connect with. And, um, and I feel like it made a huge difference for me to have that sense of community. Mm-hmm. And then um, over the years, you know, life got busier. I went to nursing school. My my child got older. I met my husband and he has a child as well. So then we became a blended family. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, all of those things were wonderful, but challenging. And um, so I, you know, I started attending 12 step less because I, I just simply didn't have as life much time for happened. it. Yeah, life <laughs> happened. Um, and now what's happened for me, you know, as I talked about a little bit on the um, previous episode, I found intuitive eating and in finding intuitive eating, I really, um, I realized that I wanted to be, I wanted to only um, participate in things that really were empowering for me because with intuitive eating, we, um, we learn to honor ourselves, our bodies and listen to what our body is telling us. And we, uh, I've also kind of come to this place through personal growth and development work of recognizing that I'm whole and complete and that I'm not broken. And, um, I was feeling like 12 step recovery was, had been really helpful to me, but that some of the messaging and some of the language there is still, um, you know, you still get the message that you're broken. There's something wrong with you. Um, you know, people say, Oh, I'm just a piece of shit or, you know, I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic. And even those terms, um, 
our shaming. So the, the language has changed. Now we use alcohol use disorder and substance use disorder because I'm much more than just an alcoholic, right? I'm a person who has alcohol use disorder and substance use disorder. And so, um, yeah. And so I have um, actually left 12 step um, recovery programs now. And um, I started a podcast about this and it's been really interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. To really finally come to a place where I feel like I fully integrated myself and I, and I honor who I am and, um, and re- my recovery is piece, a piece of that. So now I speak about being in recovery all the time. I claim that for myself. I, I, uh, if you don't already love Tiffany, like I do, we have 48 more minutes. Um, yes, I took so many notes and I just, um, clearly just sat quietly because I'm just so engaged. And so, um, this is always a, um, oh my God, where do I start? (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) so for any of those who are listening, um, I have always, um, you know, identified my dad as someone who used alcohol and my mom's a, um, I would like to, in my own personal experience, qualified as like binge drinking. Right. So I've always been fascinated with like, okay, what makes people want to drink and what, um, you know, what drives them to make that a priority. And, um, you know, I don't, if you believe in the universe or I was just a avid fixer. So I'd surround myself with people that like drinking mm-hmm. and kind of wanting to understand and believe that I could be of some, so, some support in some way. So when I hear that there's this possibility, then I hear there's a woman who's, you know, 21 years sober, my heart is like, Oh, you <laughs> right. Like, because I've been on every part of the journey alongside of others as they've, you know, fallen off the wagon, got back on, fallen off again and, um, or, you know, denied the wagon or, you know, whatever you, mm-hmm. you want to, um, it's, it's a journey. It's a lot. It's, it's heavy. It's hard. It's, you know, um, transformational. It's beautiful. It's profound. It's, um, everything in between. So what I, I'm really curious, um, I want to start with acknowledging you. Hi, just this language piece is so important. Um, I have a beautiful friend who's, um, you know, had a very trying upbringing and she educated me once on, it's not, these people aren't homeless, right? Quit labeling them, right? They're not homeless. They're people experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. And there's such a profound difference when you look at it that way. It's like, oh man, they're not just homeless. That's just, that's not their identity. That's not who they are. Mm -hmm. And to even hear you say it, it's like, oh wow. Like, how are we so still stuck in this old, uneducated labeling system? that predetermines that these people, this, that alcoholism or being an alcoholic is their identity. Mm-hmm. And how can we all start to practice saying these are individuals with alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder? 
Yeah, I love that you fo- you're focusing on that because it is like you said, language does matter. And what we're finding is that um, there's actually now being research being done. Um, actually, I just got the opportunity to interview Robert Ashford, and he's a recovery scientist. Yeah, and um, and he, he, you know, in, in his work, um, he's really looked at you know how does language impact, and the the challenge, the challenging part is that um, in we call mutual aid groups or 12-step recovery, these types of meetings, um, a lot of times people feel really freed by claiming like I'm an alcoholic and that means that, um, you know, there's something I can do about it, right? Or that I can, I have, now I have recovered, right? And so um, there's this sentiment and people wanting to really hold on to that. But what we're finding is if you're using that language outside of those groups, so it's one thing if you're in a meeting and you want to identify as an alcoholic, but um, which I I no longer choose to identify that way, but but I do believe, you know, I have alcohol use disorder and that's not going to ever go away or change. Right. Um, and so if you're using those terms outside of the meetings, what happens is that other people are stigmatized and shamed people who aren't, um, actually, you know, aren't sober or, um, people who, um, are sober even are stigmatized by it when we um, look at like a healthcare setting. Right. And so if you, if you ask a doctor for a consult and you say in there that the person's an alcoholic, they're less likely to suggest treatment and more likely to suggest punitive, right? So, um, you know, like um, not allowing them to have medication or not treating them, you know, basically we're treated differently in healthcare settings in in justice settings, right? So people are less likely to be sent to treatment and they're more likely to be sent to jail. If you use terms like alcoholic addict, um, you know, junkie, these types of things. And instead, if we're replacing that and saying alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder, it actually reduces, um, the, um, amount of punitive, treatment that is Mm. given. And so um, they've shown this in a bunch of different ways and it's really interesting. But also the other negative piece about using those terms is that um, we tend to, um, people tend to be distanced from recovery or the accessibility of recovery because you may have alcohol use disorder because it's a spectrum, right? But you don't identify with being an alcoholic, right? People are like, mm-hmm. well, I don't live under a bridge. They say it's stuff like that, right? Well, in order to feel like you deserve or that recovery is accessible to you, identifying as alcohol use disorder is much easier, right? And so mm-hmm. it's much more obtainable and it makes it more accessible for um, people who are on a different place in the spectrum than someone who's maybe a daily drinker, right? Mm-hmm. And so we want to, and this is something we talk about in our podcast. Um, my, I have a co-host, uh, Liv Pinelli. Anyway, um, we talk about this because we want recovery to be accessible to as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. And that means not stigmatizing people and not shaming them. And it means mm-hmm. um, really um, acknowledging that it's a spectrum and that it's not, you know, a one size fits all, um, disorder. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that. Um, sitting on this end, right. Because I remember the first, I, I participate in adult children of 
alcoholics, mm-hmm. um, once also called adult children of dysfunctional families. Mm-hmm. And, um, I got to really learn, yeah. Like how malicious it actually is to be like, my dad's an alcoholic and, you know, from the outside or as an, uh, someone who's trying to educate them, it's kind of almost hurtful to be like, dad, you're an alcoholic. Um, and when you look at it as a spectrum, it's kind of like, okay, well maybe you're on the lower end of the spectrum where just black out <laughs> once, a, <laughs> you know, or to the extreme, right. One night a week, um, you know, having that conversation, he's always been like, Oh, well, you know, if that's the worst thing I like to do, like, that's just how I like to have fun. Like shoot me. Right. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's all I do for fun. I have a dozen beers plus, you know, whatever. And it kind of was like, wow, like how, you know, in his mindset it's this, but when you hear this, like a, an individual who has an alcohol use disorder, it really just softens it. Mm-hmm. Like there's not like, it's just like, Oh Yeah. That's, that's so much, there's less stigma. There's no shame behind it. It's not like pointing this righteous finger that you're like, you're messed up. I'm not like, Mm -hmm. you were a terrible person. I suffered from it. Thanks. You know, it's Mm -hmm. so, um, it just, it's flat. Like it's neutral. It just is like, and you can be anywhere on the spectrum and it's not like you're less than or worse than it just is. Um, so I really love being able to apply that from sitting over here, um, you know, the adult child of an alcoholic, but then it's like, even that, right. We're like, so adult child of an individual who's got an alcohol disorder. So we probably should change that as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I really love the like evolution of this. We're learning that what once worked may not still work. And the evolution of how we can use the language to better support those who want to be in recovery and how that can change the very face of what recovery looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And thank you so much for, um, you know, really diving into this because I think it's, it's a topic that people sometimes get nervous about and like, you know, we're used to using certain terms and that's, it kind of comes out naturally. But I think if we're open to the idea that, you know, other language might be more helpful than, mm-hmm. um, and really modeling that for, for everyone is so valuable and so important. And, um, and yeah, really, you know, for me, the goal is to extend the hand, extend the hand of recovery to as many people as possible, but also reduce stigma, um, mm-hmm. and shame because, well, for two reasons, one is that, um, you know, you get, like I said, there's less, the treatment isn't as, um, uh, you get more kind of judgmental treatment in the healthcare setting. So you actually, there's actually harm done. Um, if someone does have, you know, issues with drinking or, or, um, use of substances and, and so that causes harm, right. But also the more stigma and shame we experience, we're starting to learn a couple of things. One is that, um, stigma, is harmful to your health in itself as a standalone Mm. thing and shame actually perpetuates these issues right so if you feel Mm. shame about who you are then what are you going to want to do you're going to want to soothe right yeah (laughs) using what using substances using food using sex using whatever right and so it doesn't it doesn't actually help anyone break the cycle or Mm -hmm. get um get 
treatment or improve or heal or any of those things to be shaming. Um, but that, all that being said, you know, it's not, we're, we're not suggesting that in, like, if you're, you know, if you're going to an adult ch- children of alcoholics meeting, like that's the title of it. Right. So it's like, yeah, I mean, it's part of our language. And so we're not suggesting that people don't, um, that if you identify if someone identifies as being an alcoholic, or if, um, someone, you know, identifies as being, you know, part of that community, like in those communities, um, it's still considered, you know, it's considered a safe container to use that type of language. Um, but I, uh, that's so that's where I want to step in. And this is, so I do a lot of work with herpes and shame and that whole community. And it breaks my heart that these, there's these underground communities where there's so many millions of people that feel like they have to be anonymous and hide. And, you know, I went to a huge event in Austin and 500 people showed up that had it. And, you know, we're in a swimming pool and three people that don't, right? There's wristbands. So three people don't have wristbands on. And I'm just kind of like, how profound could we change their life by just going over and being like, hey, every single person in this pool right now, 500 people in this pool have herpes. Mm. Like we could make such an impact for those individuals to be like, wow, it's not just like this huge raging leprosy that like, you know, is taking out individuals. It's like, a lot of people have it. And I had to honor everyone's anonymity, but it, 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 it goes against the shame because the best way to heal shame is to share. Mm-hmm. And if we're hiding in these groups and trying to be anonymous. It's like, you're almost reinforcing the shame and the stigma because it's too shameful to talk about. And it's stigmatic to like have a conversation over. And I just hate that. Like it really grinds my gears because how much are we actually perpetuating that we need to hide, Mm -hmm. that we need to be anonymous. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of the I am statement. We're being told like, I am an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. you know, I am someone that has herpes. Um, It's like, I am actually exuberant. I am empathetic. Mm -hmm. I am charismatic. Like I am these things that has no labels. I am these things that like I'm authentically without even trying. And I think that it's so hard. We're, we're trying to force people to force on, like try on these labels and like, this is who you are. And then no wonder, right? Like no wonder we're so depressed. No wonder we're really starting to feel bad about ourselves because I'm an alcoholic. I am a sex addict. I am someone with an STD. I am, you know, you know, like, where's the really great things? Where do we go to meet up to be with people to talk about the really badass? women that we are or men or individuals, you know, where's that, where's that in an anonymous meeting? Yeah. Um, gosh. Oh, it really gets me. Sorry. Yeah. Well, there's, there is a whole, um, recover out loud movement that's happening. And, nice. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Yeah. Me. And part of, for me, part of leaving the hospital is really integrating all the pieces of me. And so that's why it's right in my bio now that I'm a person in recovery. So even if I'm going on a show to talk about, you know, um, talk about how to eat mindfully or something that's still part of who I am. Right. And that's part of how I learned to become someone who eats mindfully. Right. And that, like you said, I'm multidimensional and I want to integrate all of these pieces of me. I don't want to be this piece over here and that piece over there and a different piece here. Um, and so that is one of the reasons that I have, you know, left 12 steps. Um, and now I do recover out loud and I'm very, um, I'm very, uh, 
vocal about it. And it's been really amazing since I have been more vocal about it. And it's not exactly that I felt like I needed to hide it, but that's partially just because I've been sober for so long that it's become this, like now it's an accomplishment or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we are finding is that even talking about sobriety in that way, that like now I'm redeemed, like I was bad and now I'm good, um, that that's also stigmatizing and shaming. And so it's interesting. I just happen to be fortunate enough to have distance from my use. But um, but what we're finding, you know, is that what I'm finding personally is the more I talk about it, the more it really opens up. Like, I can't tell you every time I share it, people, you know, say somebody comes up to me and they're like, oh yeah, I've really been finding that, you know, my wine habits starting to not feel good to me or, um, or I'm also in recovery or my spouse is in recovery or have a lot of people in my family who struggle with alcohol use or, you know, all these things. So it opens it up for other people to really, um, on, you know, own who they are or their own struggles as well. I, um, yes, all things, yes, underscore, all caps, bold, exclamation points for 50 miles. I love that. Like, so, right. Again, if you're listening, you know, if you are an individual who's in recovery, someone who, you know, identifies as having an alcohol or substance use disorder, um, or just a child of someone, right? Like there is so much power in sharing this and being vulnerable and transparent and the opportunity of exposing yourself to someone in this raw, intimate way creates depth of connection. It creates lasting friendships. It creates the very, um, you know, I don't want to say antidote, but it's like we, we so often feel so alone and isolated Mm -hmm. and so, deprived of human connection. And I think subconsciously, or maybe, you know, evolutionally, uh, I was going to make up a word there, but it's not it. Um, <laughs> I think that it's like, we just believe that the the deepest connection we can have is intercourse. What if that's mm. not true anymore? What if that's actually was never true? Mm. And we can create that type of level of intimacy through these sort of vulnerable, maybe dark in some opinions, experiences Mm -hmm. and how like that is that soul to soul or heart to heart or like I see you I feel you and like I've got you kind of conversations Mm -hmm. and that's you know what I want to ride home is and this is kind of what I talked about on Saturday I gave a speech um, to 50 women about shame and stigma and having herpes and, um, you know, how sharing that is how to heal it for yourself, heal the shame. And like, I've had so many really brilliant and profound experiences and connections with individuals who are like, Hey, maybe I don't have an STI, but I'm suffering from a lot of shame around, you know, having an autoimmune disorder or having, you know, a mental health disorder. And, um, it's, it's so connecting. And what if that's like what we're meant to do, right? Realize we're all one. We're all suffering from some sort of experience and we're all actually connected. Mm-hmm. I love that. So I'm curious, I want to go back a little bit. If you know, or if you're in your uncoverings, do you believe in your experience it is genetic or a personality to be that like 
maximum consumer? <laughs> yeah, this is a great question. So, um, so we're starting to discover some genes that are associated with developing alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder. Um, and even, you know, some that make you potentially more um, likely to have, you know, to, to struggle with certain substances over others. Um, so some people may be more prone to an amphetamine, um, you know, addiction. Some people might be more prone to a, um, you know, to marijuana even, right? And there's a lot of people out there who believe you can't be addicted to marijuana, but there there are genes that are making you more likely. Um, and, um, and yet what the studies are also showing us is that something like, I think they're finding that something like eight out of 10 people in recovery have childhood trauma, mm-hmm. um, you know, either physical or sexual abuse, um, you know, it's, it's really high prevalence. So not everyone, um, and that rate might be, I might be off on that rate, but it's an extremely high prevalence and amongst women, um, you know, there's a lot more, um, prevalence of, you know, sexual trauma in the past and correlation to substance use. And so for me, um, I, I, <laughs> interestingly enough, have had some genetic testing done for other things and actually have seen that I do have the gene that makes me more likely to um, struggle with alcohol use disorder and some substances, although ironically not um, amphetamines. Oh, <laughs> which is, bonus. Yeah. So, um, you know, does that mean I can safely use amphetamines? Probably not. Um, and does it mean that my personality is just like that? I mean, the fact that I, um, you know, gosh, I used to drink 64 ounces of Mountain Dew every day. I used to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. Like I, I've always, you know, I, when I took, um, ibuprofen, it was always like the max dose, you know, I've kind of had that piece of my personality. And, um, while I didn't have as much, you know, quote unquote, as much trauma as other people, I did, um, I did feel, um, I think I did, you know, have some neglect and I did, um, I do believe my parents were doing the best that they could with the skills that they had, but, um, but there was some of that and there was, you know, a lot of family, you know, familial trauma and my mom had had a lot of trauma in her life and, um, the dad that raised me had, um, also struggled with alcohol use, you know, disorder. And although he was sober, there's still, you know, there's a lot of pieces that come along with that. So like the closed family unit piece and, um, the, um, you know, there's just, there's a lot of little pieces. And so I believe that, um, there's a genetic propensity and then there's, you know, and then there's like the nurturing that happens. And in my life, it was just a good, um, combination of those things. There's also the, uh, adverse childhood experience test. And so that test, um, definitely shows that, you know, people who have adverse childhood experiences have a much higher propensity towards, you know, any health issue, but also substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder. Um, and then if you start looking at social determinants of health, that's also a factor. You know, if you are someone who, um, you know, doesn't have your basic needs met, especially when you're a child, you're much more likely to end up in jail, to end up with, you know, uh, health issues. And so, um, so yeah, so I guess for me, it is, I am, I think I'm a pretty good example of the, the genetic piece and then a, a bit of the nurturing of those, those, um, issues. Yeah, T- totally. I, 
want to honor you. Thank you so much for being so transparent and for sharing all of this. Um, <laughs> I think that I forget to say thank you. Oh, God. Yeah, I think you do. I had, you. had someone <laughs> share a really beautiful and intimate piece last night. And I kind of was like in awe. Mm-hmm. And then maybe I was like, in retrospect, I should just be like, hey, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, yeah. So I, you have not used the word addiction or like compulsive behavior. And I'm curious, is that intentional? Do you believe that those are also shamey and stigmatic? Um, so it's interesting. So addiction, um, you know, just saying like, um, like cocaine addiction or, you know, these things isn't, isn't considered stigmatizing um in terms of like the what's out there in terms of the research and i'm happy to send you like an infographic of like what we use um but um and then the compulsive the compulsive compulsive piece i think what's happened for me is that i've gotten far enough away from um those habits right and and actually Mm -hmm. using um and doing all of the integration that i've done I'm starting to see like I've zoomed out a lot. Right. And I'm not, I don't look at things as good as good and bad as much in my life anymore. And so the language that I use has shifted a ton because, Mm -hmm. um, absolutely we can be compulsive and, you know, like there's people who talk about compulsive overeating or binge eating disorder. Um, there's, you know, other types of compulsions as well. Um, but I think that the, in, general, they have a little bit of a, um, they have like a bad connotation to them. Right. Yeah. So if you're doing those things, you're bad or -hmm. those things are bad. And actually, um, I believe that when we judge ourselves for those things, it actually perpetuates the problem, Mm -hmm. um, because it makes us feel shame. So it triggers shame wiring in our brain, which then when we have that, um, this, you know, flood of like the negative, you know, emotions. And then, you know, it screws up our hormones, all these things. Right. And then it makes us want to self-soothe. Um, so perpetuates the problem, but also, um, it keeps us from really taking responsibility. So if we say I'm just an emotional overeater, or I'm just a junkie, or I'm just an addict, or I just, um, I just am compulsive. Right. That's like, just blaming ourselves and like self-flagellation, right? And instead of blaming myself and saying that I'm bad or judging myself, what I like to do now, of course, you know, the habits that I tend to, um, you know, have creep up or, or the, the problematic, you know, active actions or whatever, it's like much less harmful to me today, right? It's stuff like um, maybe drinking too much caffeine in a day, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, so it's a lot easier to not judge it, right? But instead, um, you know, I look at that and I say, well, what's going on for me that I'm feeling the need to do these things, right? How can I start to take care of myself in a way that I don't have to have that compulsion? And so um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that in general, I'm shifting away from any judgmental or good or bad language. And for mm-hmm. me personally, that language feels a little bit tinged with judgment. And so I just avoid it, but I don't, you know, if someone else says addict uh, or not addict, addict is considered shaming, but um, you know, I, like I have a, um, an addiction. I don't 
I don't like correct them or say that there's anything, you know, I just kind of notice like, how do I feel? How does that language make me feel? Does it still feel like it's a little judgy? And, and it does for me today. Yeah. Thanks for taking that bait. I was like, man, that was such a broad question, but I was like, you answered exactly where I was going with it. So thank you. I was like, awesome. ah, she got it. Um, I, and that's, and that's the thing. And I love that you so eloquently worded it. Um, that I always hear like, Oh, I'm, I just have an addictive behavior mm-hmm. as sort of this total lack of responsibility. Like, Oh, it just is. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to protect it or change it, or it's just never going to go away. It just is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing with compulsive, right? Like it's almost just like, Oh, I'm just such a compulsive eater. Like I can't do anything about it. I just, it controls me, my compulsive, you know, behavior. Um, and I love that you just pointed to the judgments behind it, right? Like it's, it's always in my experience had a negative and bad connotation with it. And you know, this whole conversation is so profound because it's really about language. It really is. And what I want to emphasize for those who are listening is that this is going to take practice Mm -hmm. and meet yourself where you're at, you know, learn the ways that these words are showing up in your life and how that you're using them, how you're relating to them. Um, you know, this podcast gets to be planting that seed, you know, it gets to be that conversation that you can continue to water it. Um, I find myself, like you were saying, when I hear people talk about homeless people, my friend who educated me, right. Planted that scene that said seed that said, they're not homeless people. They're people experiencing homelessness. And so now every time I hear someone, I'm like, hey, um, you want to hear this really cool thing that my friend taught me? Mm-hmm. Or I'm like, hey, how about this? Can I like plant this like really like explosive mind like movement where it's not actually people being homeless. It's people experiencing homelessness and people are like, oh, whoa. Right. Like, so how can we do that here too? Right. Like, how can we be like, Hey, maybe your dad isn't an alcoholic. Maybe he's just a guy with an alcohol, um, you know, abuse substance problem. Right. Or, you know, like allow yourself the, the, the opportunity to stumble through it. Wait, what did Tiffany say? What should we start using, you know, alcohol use disorder? Got it. Um, And, you know, share with your friends. And like, that's how we start to create the change. That's how we start to, you know, modernize our language. Um, And it's happening everywhere, right? Like I I met my first couple individuals that are non-binary and non-gender conforming and using they, them is, you know, grammatically from an English perspective, incorrect, but from honoring this person and their experience and their truth, like it just takes practice and compassion and laughing at yourself and getting frustrated and (laughs) right. Like, so I, I love this moment of, you know, really challenging how we're speaking and how we get to all practice and what that gets to look like. And it's not just in recovery. It's not just in, you know, um, gender and how we choose to identify. It's literally everywhere. 
and we can bitch and moan about things not changing or you know nothing happening but it's these little conversations that actually create the movements that make the difference so listen in and take it on to practice what you you know want to and see that there is to take on Oh, that's beautiful. And absolutely. I agree. The, um, the planting of the seed and then, and then nurturing that. And like you said, give yourself permission to stumble through it. Um, nobody is going to be, you know, perfect in this and being willing to be vulnerable and recognize that, um, you know, that we all, we all are learning. Um, this actually just happened for me the other day. I, um, I have my podcast co-host and I live, she's, um, we're both committed to doing this work and and changing language. (laughs) And, um, we really, um, uh, we really strive to learn and grow and, you know, use the language that is honoring and not, you know, shaming. And I said, oh yeah, that's really lame. And she was like, oh, hey, um, I've learned that that's an ableist comment. I just learned that. And I was like, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Thank you, you know, for sharing that with me. And the thing is that we have a relationship where we've, um, we have, like you've said, you know, in talking with people about what's really going on with you by being vulnerable, you create a space of safety and trust, right? And so we have that trust with each other. And so I'm, you know, we've invited that into our relationship that if one of us is mm-hmm. using language that's not, um, you know, that's shaming or that's not ideal or, or that isn't honoring to individuals or whatever it is, um, that, you know, we're allowed to um, talk with each other about that. And, and we're also both working on learning to call in versus calling out. And that sounds like what you're really doing here and what your friend was doing. Instead, we're calling in and saying, Hey, you know, I know that you're someone who cares and, you know, I've learned this thing and maybe it's, you know, helpful to know that and starting to shift, you know, the language or starting to shift the way that we, um, we, put people in boxes, like you're saying, or we stigmatize them. Right. And so we want, we, we don't want to do that. Right. And if we do use a term that's stigmatizing or that shaming, it doesn't mean uh, the person that uses that term is bad. It just means that, you know, it's a new concept or it's something that, um, you know, maybe we haven't adopted to yet. And there's, I, I today stumbled over the homeless example. Like I was actually in a training about inclusivity and <laughs> I was like, I want to tell this story and I know there's a better way to say this and I can't think of it right now. And so I said, I know this isn't the right terminology anymore and I can't think of it. And, um, and yeah, I was, um, you know, the, the group gently said, yeah, so it's a person experiencing homelessness or just a person who's been displaced. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's like, oh yeah, okay. You know, so it just re-solidified, even though, like I worked in the hospital in the emergency room with this, you know, I shared an office with the social workers and there's a lot of um, people who come in who are experiencing homelessness and which is why they end up, you know, using emergency services often because it's hard to access regular, you know, care if you don't have a phone and if you're, you know, you don't know where you're going to be in these things. Right. And so um, I've heard this before and it's a, I'm somebody who cares about these things. And yet, I still use, you know, the uh, terminology that's stigmatizing sometimes. And so, but, but setting that intention and, and like you said, being willing to stumble through it now, it's like solidifying in my brain. And it's funny that you brought that example up because Mm. I've heard it twice today. So I'm probably going to get it right next time. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And maybe not the next time, but maybe it's the next 15 times after. Um, (laughs) 
And I really, I think it's also important, and this has just recently happened in my experience, um, is going on a date with an individual that um, is a very factual based, um, you know, heady person and Mm -hmm. loves statistics and information. And, you know, it was, um, I'm a very heart centered person and I love emotions and I love connection. And sometimes I'm incredibly intimidated by all the facts and all the information. And if I can't feel heart behind it, I can't connect. And I feel very, almost like this, like unsafe. Mm -hmm. So when there's this opportunity for an individual to correct me and we're in this dynamic, it feels very belittling. It feels very, um, it feels like my, not my ego, but maybe my heart's like, Ooh, I said it wrong. Ooh, like, so sorry to offend you. Um, and there's probably a whole spectrum of things that are is go underlying and subconscious that I haven't examined and picked apart yet. So listen as you choose. Um, but what I really identified after a while was that that safetyness or that trust hadn't been established or that um, connection where I could be like, oh, hey, thanks. The first couple of times I was like, wow, I never will ever say that I'm the person that's right all the time. And I will never say that I'm one that memorizes statistics and that anything is overly accurate. Right. But um, like who in your life is a facts-based person? You know, do you feel that you can show up with incorrect information as you're practicing or you feel that you can show up and practice and they'll honor and accept that you're learning. Um, can you establish more safety with others or do you already have safety with other individuals that you can practice this with and not feel judged for missing a number or saying the wrong verbiage? Um, you know, choose and identify those people, right? Um, if you do find a person in passing that you're like, Oh, excuse me. It's, actually, you might want to practice experiencing homelessness instead of homeless person, right? And they immediately shoot you down. It's, it can be a subconscious place to stop and never practice again Mm. because that doesn't feel good. Um, Or you can just honor and be like, hey, they're just a fact person. We didn't have trust yet. Moving on to the next person. So I think that that's really important to emphasize is to be able to understand, you know, who is someone that you already love and trust that will will honor that you're just practicing something new and who are the people that are in your life that are, you know, maybe heady or factual or maybe you don't have trust with or you know, like to hear things done, said and conveyed properly and may correct you. Are you ready for it? How to not take it personal, right? There's a lot of layers to this practicing and it's so worth it mm-hmm. on the other side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Absolutely. I agree with everything you said. It's, it's, um, it can feel scary. And I think a lot of times, you know, we, we, we feel like we maybe aren't knowledgeable enough or we don't want to, you know, risk saying it wrong. But, um, but I would just encourage everyone to, you know, to know that if you're the kind of person who cares about this, then, um, then really acknowledging like it's your intention there, right. Mm-hmm. That is, is the important piece and that, um, we're going to stumble through it and that's how we get that practice mm-hmm. and that it's, um, we're, we're, we're human, we're all human. And so really, um, 
recognizing like this, I'm just kind of, I'm, you know, I'm reclaiming my humanity here and I'm yes. <laughs> humble, 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 humility. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. I, uh, so good. I love all of this stuff. Um, I think most importantly, find your community, find people that also care about these things Mm -hmm. that aren't going to make it feel like it's a stupid thing or a small thing, or like, why are you wasting your time on this thing? Um, it's, it's, if that's something that lights you up, that you care about, um, you know, practice not letting people take that away from you and find people that will light that up and support you and, you know, can coexist in that desire and passion. Um, it's huge. Hop on Facebook, find hashtags on Instagram. I mean, meetup is incredible. Podcasts are profound. Um, <laughs> books, anything. Uh, speaking of podcasts, let's talk about breaking free your recovery your way welcome to the podcast world tiffany (laughs) thank you so much yeah um so we have launched a podcast my co-host and i and it's all about breaking free from the paradigms that keep us small and so um it's you know it's breaking free from things like substance use disorder alcohol use disorder you know disordered eating but also breaking free from those you know the structures that um keep us that way and so we do talk about um, you know, the essentials of recovery. We talk about leaving 12 step. We talk about the benefits even of 12 step because, you know, that they, it definitely had a huge impact on my life and, and enabled me to, um, come to the place that I'm in today. Um, and, and yeah, you know, I did feel like I needed to leave as well. And then we go into disordered eating uh, we talk about, you know, focusing on weight loss and we talk about, um, how diet culture is harmful and, um, intuitive eating. And then in the future, we're going to be going into more things like talking about boundaries and, um, yes, boundaries. Boundaries. <laughs> I have to have 17 episodes on that. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> One part nine part. 20. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're starting to bring in, um, leaders in the community as well and, and just starting to have some interviews. So, um, <laughs> yep. And, and um, Clarice might have to be on and um, talking about shame and um, yeah. And then like we just did one on sex of re- sex and recovery. Um, mm. So that's been, a, that was a really fun episode and um, yeah, we're just really, we're having so much fun with it. And um, right now we're releasing them weekly. Um, so there's something new every week. Wow. Hitting the ground running. Okay. <laughs> ladies again, check it out. Breaking free your recovery, your way. It's where all podcasts are found. Or are we just yeah. uh, starting on iTunes? Yeah, no, we're, so we're on yeah, Apple podcast, um, Spotify, SoundCloud, Anchor, oh, you know, kind of all over. Mm-hmm. And so how do people get involved with you? How can they find you? Where do we, yeah. where do we send them? What do we got? Yeah. So my website's coachtiffanyrn.com. And, um, and then we, um, in on Facebook, if you're interested in the podcast, uh, we have the breaking free community, um, as well. So feel free to join our group and I would love for people to listen in, um, you know, both if you're in recovery of any type and we talk about all pathways of recovery and, um, and that's a big, that's really important to me, but also if you are, um, you know, someone like you, you've mentioned, you have people in your life, if you're wanting to help 
be, you know, a support person, or if you're wanting to really start to understand more about the language or understand the experience of people who struggle with substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, um, it can, it kind of applies to those things as well. So, um, yeah, so please listen in and, and share it as well. Okay. Most important part, I... In case you're listening and don't know how to spell Tiffany or there's 6,500 ways and you're not clear which one, <laughs> we're going to do C-O-A-C-H-T-I-F-F-A-N-Y-R-N.com. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. I always enjoy our conversation. <laughs> Yay. Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, amazing. All the things. Yes. And a cool thing. I've been listening to podcasts a lot more, podcasts a lot more since I'm in my like two and a half years of this. I'm like, how can I evolve? And what can I do? And um, subscribe. Hi. <laughs> I should ask you all to subscribe. So subscribe to Heart Empowered Women podcast and also subscribe to Breaking Free, Your Recovery, Your Way. How come? So then you get notifications when new podcasts have been released. You could be like in the know, a little hip. Who doesn't want another place where you can practice being hip? and you won't miss out on any great conversations because you know there's a lot of other things you could be listening to and we love and adore the things that resonate with you and i'm really grateful that you found them and you stumbled here or walked casually or run (laughs) so i hope that you incorporate all the things um this is a lot it's absolutely a lot and all that you have to do is take the next step. You don't have to do anything, actually. All you can do, if you choose to, is take that first next step that you see as something to take on, something to try. Is it to find the Breaking Free community on Facebook um, so that you can talk about all the pathways of recovery? Is it going to Coach Tiffany RN because you want to talk to her specifically about some of the things that we've covered? Um, Is it just finding that friend that you feel safe enough to share and be yourself with so that you can practice saying, hey, I would like to be referred to as someone who's experiencing an alcohol use disorder. Um, Educate people. That's how we really get to change how people show up in the world. And sharing your story only heals your shame. Mm -hmm. So... Take on what you can and leave the rest for tomorrow. Thank you again for listening to another episode of Heart Empowered Women. I am Clarice Connolly. You can find me at empoweringwomen.coach. Thank you again. This is amazing. Go recover out loud. Join the movement. Let's make (laughs) magic happen. Thank you. (laughs) 